Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney, recording today here in Amiskwachewa Skygun, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory on the banks of the Kasiskasawanasipi, or the North Saskatchewan River. I am back after a couple of weeks off. I caught uh, a very mild case of COVID, um, but while my case was very mild, um, and I didn't end up getting my partner or my kid sick. Uh, I did have to take the two weeks off because my kid couldn't actually go back to daycare because she was a close contact and she's under five. She's unvaccinated. So we got to watch, you know, a lot of Encanto and, uh, you know, make a lot of do a lot of family portraits and make a lot of art and Lego for a couple of weeks. So not terrible uh, in the in the kind of stretch of things of people who have caught COVID. How about uh and that uh, brings us. That's that's enough of the like intro here. I was gonna be. I was gonna ask the uh, the guest what if they've caught COVID yet, but I haven't even introduced them. Our guest for this podcast is um, a returning guest, uh, Lorian Hardcastle, uh, an associate professor at the University of Calgary who specializes in health law and health policy. We've obviously brought her here to discuss. Uh, the decision by Jason Kenney to lift pretty much all of the COVID restrictions um, because a bunch of people, you know, blockaded the border and got really mad at him. But uh, before we get to that, Lorian, how are you doing? Have you managed to not get COVID? I am good, and I have managed to to not get COVID. Although I will say, in large part, due to my limited associations with people who go to school and and my ability to work from home, and and so I've been fortunate both in not catching it, but in having circumstances that are conducive to not catching it. Yeah. And like, I don't see, I don't see very many people either. And like, uh, I, my hypothesis where I got my case was either from my like daughter who's asymptomatic, who goes to daycare or from like the grocery store. <laughs> Cause yeah. like the only other person in my life who wasn't my family, uh, that like I was in a room without a mask on prior to getting sick was like, didn't get sick. And so it's like, I don't know, like those are the only other two places. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Omicron is, is, uh, is pretty evasive and finds you, finds you where you are. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, and I, I thankfully it was mild. Like I do have my, my double vax and my booster. So it's like, if you haven't got your booster yet, go get your booster. It can only help if you are unlucky enough to get sick. But yes, uh, yesterday was, you know, the long, terrible shit show of Alberta politics continues. And Jason Kenney, Jason Copping, and Dina Hinshaw stood in front of the people of Alberta and said, you know, all this COVID stuff, you know, we don't need it. It's, it's like, it's, it's good. It's run its course. We're safe now. There's no more COVID anymore. Uh, you know, you can now eat or uh, you can now go to a restaurant. You can now go to a show or a hockey game. And in fact, the the changes they announced took place like immediately, like midnight the same day, <laughs> which was wild to me. Uh, the other big changes was you can now eat or drink in your seat if you're at like an entertainment venue. So if you're you know eat nachos and drink your beer if you're sitting in this if you're watching a Flames or Oilers game live, uh, there are however still restrictions on serving booze and dancing and drinking out late for some reason. Uh, venues with capacity of over a thousand people are limited to fifty percent capacity, and facilities with capacities between five hundred and a thousand are restricted to five hundred, for whatever that gets you. And then, starting next week, February fourteenth, no more masks in school, and masks, and uh, no more masks for children in any setting, uh, age twelve and under. So why don't we start with those kind of those like first two blocks? Laurie, and what kind of jumped out at you from those initial kind of restrictions that were lifted? 
Well, I think that uh, the, the school one in particular came very suddenly, and we heard from school trustees and other stakeholders that they hadn't been consulted, hadn't been let know this was coming, and indeed are still receiving masks, have received shipments of masks in recent days. <laughs> and so we're, we're very caught off guard. I think with the, the restriction exemption program or the vaccine passport by another name, uh, again, people were, were puzzled by how rapidly that happened. And the mayors didn't know it was coming. The chambers of commerce didn't know it was coming. It was was dropped on everybody very quickly. Yeah, I mean, two weeks ago, Jason Kenney was saying, "Oh yeah, we'll we'll drop the the vaccine passport end of March," and then a week ago he was saying, "Oh yeah, we'll drop the vaccine passport at the end of February," and then late last week, like Friday, he was, "Oh yeah, we'll drop the vaccine passport like Monday." <laughs> Well, and, and, and very interestingly, Dr. Hinshaw was asked about the vaccine passport last week and talked about its significant benefits and didn't talk about those benefits in a way that like she didn't say we're getting diminishing returns on those benefits. She didn't say it's run its course, which is what we heard from the premier. So I, I'd be interested to know what she advised them and, and how that somehow morphed into what we got. Yes. And while cases have uh, plateaued, uh, they haven't really significantly decreased. We're, we're still seeing, you know, our, our 10 to 15 deaths a day from COVID. And and really the only thing that changed in those two weeks from when Jason Kenney said, oh, yeah, we'll end it at the end of March to, oh, we'll end it tomorrow, <laughs> is, uh, you know, a, a protest movement started up in Ottawa. And then there was like a sympathy protest movement that started up at the busiest international border between uh, Alberta and the United States at the Coots Sweetgrass Crossing, where, you know, a couple hundred people in trucks, I think it's down to a few dozen now, uh, decided to block an international border and put pressure on the government by kind of stopping commerce, stopping traffic uh, on a major international uh, highway and border crossing. And you know, to bow and one of their demands, obviously, and there they had several demands. Um, hilariously, one of them was they wanted every uh, UCP MLA to resign and citizen independent, which would have been very funny. Yeah, <laughs> because it's like, well, then then Rachel Notley's the premier, but but okay, go off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the uh, one of their demands was the dropping of the vaccine passport program, and they fucking got it. You know, they they fucking Jason Kenny. Listened. You block an international highway, gets Jason Kenney's attention. Um, yeah, and I think I mean I think that that in and of itself is is concerning. I think there are, certainly there were political factors at play. I think that's important. I think the forthcoming leadership review is is influential on his on his decisions. But I think it's unfortunate because it sends the message that you know that kind of protest, which involved some concerning physical interactions. Um, you know, it's the version in Ottawa involved uh, some some white supremacist messaging. I mean, I don't think we want the message out there to be that that is the kind of protest that influences policymakers. Well, we're going to get into that later on. Trust me, I have my opinions on on, on both on tactics and on outcomes and, and okay. on the people who are doing them and what they're asking. But I, I, there's still there are still uh, there were other parts of that announcement that I haven't even gone over with. So starting at the end of February, starting on March 1st, 
any remaining provincial school requirements, including cohorting, will be removed. Screening prior to youth activities will no longer be required. All capacity limits will be lifted. Limits on social gatherings will be removed, uh, which weren't really being enforced anyways. Uh, provincial mask mandate will be removed at the end of the month, and mandatory work from home will be removed. I assume that's for like provincial workers. It wasn't really clear in the announcement. But uh, yes, so that's all coming as well. And then there was kind of like future announcements that were like dependent on, you know, hospitalizations going down. But Lorraine, this all seems incredibly dangerous and irresponsible considering the stress on the healthcare system that we are currently seeing. No? Yeah, it, it, it is concerning. The, the vaccine passports were an important tool to, to bolster vaccination rates and to um, prevent a lot of commingling between unvaccinated and unvaccinated and others. Of course, masking has been uh, a significant component of the public health effort right since the beginning. And of course, when you when you talk about the, the odds and ends that will be removed in the future, one of those is the requirement to isolate when you're sick. And so I think those are some just basic public health measures that uh, soon soon we won't have the benefit of. Yeah, like this government is making policy choices that will kill more people, like that will extend the length and and the length of this fifth wave and the damage that it does to both our healthcare system and you know people's lives and bodies, right? That's right. And, and this is a government that we've heard a lot about lives and livelihoods from and uh, some of the restrictions. I, I don't think we can deny that some of the restrictions around business closures and whatnot have impacted livelihoods. But the, the requirement, for example, that we, we no longer mask, I, I just don't see what benefit that's that we're really gaining in terms of freedom or economic benefits. It's such a, a simple thing we can do to try to stay safe. I want to see children's smiles, Lorian. And it's frankly, it's hurting my freedom that I can't see the smiles of children. Well, and, and we did hear from, from the premier that, that he, he does think that masks are oppressive to children and, and that they interfere with their freedom. But I think that uh, we've heard from actual experts in the area, child psychologists, pediatricians, that that, that in fact children are, are more resilient when it comes to wearing masks than we give them credit for. Yeah, I have a four-year-old. I mean, they don't have to wear a mask in daycare, but like when we go to the grocery store or we go to like the pool or whatever, like you give them a mask, they put on a mask. Like who fucking cares? It's not a fucking deal. Uh, you know, I still see my kids smile when we're like, home together, you know, yeah. <laughs> like it, it, one of the more absurdist parts of, of this whole Kabuki theater about Jason Kenney lifting these restrictions and not saying that it was due to, you know, his rural caucus and his base and this leadership review was this bullshit about kids. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And, and kids, I think to the extent that kids are complaining about wearing masks, that they're just reflecting the attitudes of their parents. If the parents are, are positive to wear about wearing masks and are, are not complaining about wearing masks, the kids will mirror that, especially the little ones. Oh, yeah. And I think it's also worth pointing out the, the day that Kenny announced the lifting of all these restrictions. You know, Alberta set a new record for COVID hospitalizations. You know, 1,623 people in hospital just, just yesterday. We're recording this late afternoon on Thursday. Uh, you know, 129 people in ICU, 13 deaths. Uh, the stats just came out before we started recording, Lorian. The hospitalizations are essentially flat, uh, minus 8 to 1,615, but an increase of plus 6 in the ICU numbers up to 136 and another 10 deaths today. So it's, it's not like we are through 
this fifth wave in any by any stretch of the imagination. No, and you know we hear a lot from this government on the difference between people in the hospital because of COVID or people with COVID, and and I think that that's we're just exaggerating and and fixating on that because the fact of the matter is, you know, if you're there with other conditions and you have COVID, that can complicate and lengthen your recovery, even if it's your not your primary reason for being there. Yeah, there's no such thing as incidental fucking COVID. When you have COVID, you have COVID. And if you're in a hospital and you have COVID, like it is a fucking deal. All of the people who treat you have to be like fully PPE'd up. You are possibly getting other people in that hospital sick. It is a complicating factor when it comes to the other things you are getting treated for, working in concert, perhaps making it harder for you to live or to have a functional, healthy life in the future. Like yeah. it, the, the whole incidental thing is, is pretty frustrating to hear because it doesn't matter. If you're in the hospital with COVID, you're in the hospital with COVID. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's part of this bigger problem um, where we hear language from the premier constantly that um, minimizes the impact of COVID and overstates the impact of the what I'll call public health protections. We heard from him uh, yesterday in the press conference. He must have used the phrase damaging restrictions two dozen times. Oh yeah, it was a key message. It was a key message. It was underlined in red and like circled, like say this word over and over and over yeah, again, definitely. Yeah. And so, I mean, let, let's get to the press conference and let's let's kind of like parse the 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 weird and nonsensical uh, justifications that Kenny kind of trotted out for this decision. Uh, what were your kind of favorite and or most nonsensical justification that, that Jason Kenney came up with to introduce this, these uh, lifting of all these uh, COVID restrictions now? Well, well, I think that just this characterizing them of, of, as a whole, as damaging restrictions is, is just not, not accurate. I think there are certain restrictions you could say have economic impacts. There are others that, that have other kinds of impacts, but to just label them all as damaging, I think it's just ridiculous. I, for the masks, for example, I keep coming back to that, but it, it's such a minimal intrusion on, on what you can and can't do. Um, so we, we heard him talk about that and, and how damaging this has all been to, to children. And while the restrictions have had an effect on children, children are also um, unvaccinated. Some of them can't be vaccinated, some of them. And... Uh, schools have have put them at a, at a lot of risk, and uh, we've seen pediatric hospitalizations. Those numbers are concerning. So I think his his remarks to me just lacked any sort of balance. The other thing I, I think stood out to me from his his remarks were, um, and we heard the same thing actually in Saskatchewan's press conference yesterday, was a lot of rhetoric around being kind to the unvaccinated and being nice to people and and respecting individual choices. And, you know, while, while, of course, people should be respectful of one another, you don't get to minimize the legitimate frustration that people feel who have been trapped at home, in many cases, because of the unvaccinated or who are on healthcare waiting lists, um, in large part because of the unvaccinated. And, and to just minimize the feelings of those people isn't fair either. Yeah, you brought up something I was going to bring up, which is one of my most least favorite parts is the, you know, Kenny constantly bringing up how divisive, you know, these public health restrictions are, or these public health measures are in order to stop the spread of, you know, a deadly disease. And it's like, bro, like you are literally one of the people, one of the most prominent people causing this so-called division. Like you have fundraised off it. You have, you have derided uh, and mocked 
you know, wanting to people who wanted to bring in public health measures and then were forced to bring them in because like the situation got so bad that like your healthcare system was about to collapse and really is, is in a still in a state of collapse. Like him decrying how divisive this all is, 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 is fucking crocodile tears. Uh, you did that, bro. Like that's you, and you fanned the flames of the truckers. You fanned the flames of anti-maskers. You fanned the flames of anti-vaxxers. You know, like all this, like oh, we we got rid of mandatory vaccinations. Like, bro, like there hasn't been mandatory vaccinations in Alberta in like ninety-eight years. Uh, <laughs> like that that was a, a particularly infuriating part of of Kenny's justification for all of this is though that. The, the divisive nature of these public health restrictions. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, no, he's he's been one of the biggest causes of of that of that division all along, and has really emboldened um, those who have pushed back against restrictions by constantly talking about freedom and liberty. And of course, those are important concepts, but those those concepts are not unlimited, and and those concepts have to be balanced against caring about other people and doing the right thing for your community. And we just don't hear as much of that, that from him. Um, or for example, when, when the premier gets airtime on vaccines, he often wastes half of the time talking about health Canada being slow and Trudeau. And, you know, we, nobody needs to hear that. You don't need to politicize everything. If, if your mouth is open and the word vaccine is coming out, the only things that you should be saying are safe, effective. Here's where you can get it. I don't, we don't need to hear about Trudeau. Yeah. And the, the, the rhetoric around freedom and all that shit is incredibly infuriating too. Right. It's like, I feel like George Costanza and fucking Seinfeld, like we're living in a society here. Like the, your freedom does not extend to the freedom to like crush our, our hospitals and our healthcare systems. Your freedom does not extend to like coughing in my mouth. Like, yeah. And and also, I mean, the, the short-term sacrifice in freedom has longer-term payoffs in terms of freedom. The Some of the countries that have locked down um, quite strict, stringently were then able to enjoy uh, a greater degree of openness in a much sooner time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The other thing that really came to light over the course of this these past two weeks is the political rebellion internally within the UCP and, and what's being done by Kenny to manage it via these, you know, public health policy decisions. Uh, you know, he still has to set the date for the, the Fort McMurray by-election where Brian Jean is going to be the UCP candidate and where he has said out loud his only goal is to get rid of Kenny as leader. He is facing a leadership review uh, April 9th. You know, his rural caucus is essentially baying for blood and essentially for all, based on outcomes here, is, is running the party now. Uh, you know, again, public public health policy decisions that will mean more people will die are being done so Jason Kenney can save his own political skin. And it's worth saying that over and over again, because it is completely craven and cowardly and just a complete lack of leadership shown on, again, like a public health policy decision that will kill probably hundreds of more people by the time it's done. Yeah, the, the politicization of these issues throughout the pandemic has been has been such a, a source of frustration. And he has constantly tried to walk the middle line and try and appease the members of his caucus who are opposed to restrictions, but then also appease those who um, maybe some of the, the uh, ML, uh, MP, MLAs in urban areas where their residents are, are more supportive of restrictions. And 
you know, by, by trying to worry about the politics, he's really failed at the public health piece. Yeah. So was there anything that jumped out at you from the press conference? I mean, I know the one I'm origin I'm going to jump to right off the hop, but is there anything that, that jumped out at you that you want to pull out from the press conference? Well, one, one thing that I think is interesting, and, and this is maybe something we'll come back to, is just the um, the issue around, well, where does that, that leave everybody else? I think this decision came very suddenly to businesses, schools, post-secondaries, um, to municipalities. And one of the, the things that he, he got asked about, which was interesting, was around, well, what, what about private businesses? Can they still have rules? Can cities still have rules? And his, he seems to, his suggestion seems to be that they plan to be resistant in terms of municipalities having rules, but that, they, that he's receptive to individual businesses having vaccine restrictions or perhaps masking restrictions. And so we're, we're sort of in a place where uh, he had his press conference in the evening, and I'm sure everybody else was scrambling all day today to figure out where that leaves them. Yeah, let's get into that because there has been a reaction from municipalities and, and businesses and business associations, business groups. Um, you know, right before we started recording, you know, we Calgary, the Calgary City Council voted on uh, bringing in their kind of own vaccine passport program. That looks like it was voted down. However, they do look like they are going to be writing a strongly worded letter to the province, politely asking for the recommendations that were made by Dina Hinshaw that were used to make this decision. Uh, Edmonton has taken a slightly different tack. Edmonton has gone to administration, voted unanimously to go to administration and say, hey, draw up a vaccine passport program for us to consider, likely on Friday. Uh, You know, we've seen the Alberta Hospitality Association and the Chamber of Commerce in Calgary, friend of the show, Deborah Yedlin, notably, kind of going public saying like, this is all, this is, you know, while we support the blah, 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 like this is a little too much, too soon, too fast kind of thing. Uh, You know, the reaction from, you know, other levels of government, from school boards, from business associations, like there is, there is, and, and even then, and even the coots blockaders are still blockading the border. Like there doesn't seem to be anyone that's happy with what happened. Yeah, and I think the, the problem is like, Jason Kenney does not live in a UCP vacuum. His decisions affect other groups. They affect other uh, other people, other decision makers. And to not have consulted them on this, to not have got input, um, to not give anyone the heads up, and this comes into effect immediately, everybody was scrambling. And, you know, I know that I, my employer sent an email uh, after all of this saying, well, you know, we we have our own vaccine system that's separate from that of the that of the province. It's not part of the restriction exemption program. So I guess, you know, for now that applies, but stay tuned. And I'm sure lots of people received stay tuned emails from, from their employers or from organizations that they work with because the, the government really just didn't consult anyone on this. Yeah. Like, like, I mean, you made the point earlier about, you know, school boards were still getting shipments of masks and, and this the same day or the same week that, um, you know, Jason Kenney's saying, oh yeah, by the way, you don't need to wear a mask. And pretty soon, <laughs> like one hand doesn't know what the other hand's doing here. And, and this is clearly evident when Kenny starts talking about mask mandates, you know, there's a clip here that I'm going to play where it's like, oh yeah, here's Jason Kenney in 2020 uh, before he was forced to bring in mask mandates saying, oh yes, if we're not bringing in a mask mandate because pol- uh, municipalities can bring in mask mandates. But yeah. then you'll hear him say the exact opposite. Here's here's the clip. Debbie Babbage says, why not make masks mandatory across the province? It seems ridiculous to not do it, at least for a while, until things calm down just a bit. Thanks, Debbie. Good question. 
So um, I, I've, municipalities representing about 90% of the population have already brought in various kinds of mask mandates based on their own local conditions. Uh, we respect uh, their authority to do so. Uh, All right, Luke uh, Suvanto, Suvanto excuse me, says, Mr. Kenny, when you repeal the mandates, could you add a provision to, in, uh, to stop local municipalities from implementing their own mask or vaccine mandates? Um, very good question, Luke. Um, right now, based on the current powers of the Municipal Government Act, uh, the legal advice we have is that municipalities do have that authority. They have a very wide-ranging bylaw, uh, general kind of generic bylaw authority under the Municipal Government Act. Um, but we will certainly take a look at that because I don't think that the um, city governments, aldermen, councillors, excuse me, have any... Uh, uh, this is not their normal field of responsibility. They don't have... Uh, access to the same data that we do <laughs> and I if the province moves ahead uh, safely to broadly lift our public health measures but we have uh, municipal politicians improvising their own local policies uh, I think that would be a matter of great concern so we'll, we'll uh, consider your suggestion and take a, a look at that but we wouldn't be able to amend the Municipal Government Act in any event until the legislature resumes sitting um, effectively in late February, early March. You know, like, he'll say one thing, say the other. He's, he's completely craven, and he'll bend to whatever is fucking, whatever he wants to get done at the time, he'll say. Yeah, and it's it's a concern to me that, you know, in, in um, I guess, kind of second wave, and then in fourth wave, when this government was nowhere to be found, others had to fill the gap. Um, you had municipalities putting in mask bylaws, second wave, during the government's period of being MIA. You had school boards putting in place requirements in anticipation of the school year, universities. You had private businesses start to um, require vaccines of their employees. Uh, municipalities started to put rules in place. And so everybody else was was do, has been doing that work all along. And, and it's a real about face for him to say that now he's thinking about amending the law to bar governments from municipal governments from doing this. And similarly, we had a letter from uh, Minister LaGrange saying that schools are not allowed to have mask rules or uh, vaccine rules. Um, her letter, in terms of its legal status, it, it's not clear that it's, it's um, sp specific enough and clear enough to constitute a ministerial directive, but she certainly could make a ministerial directive. Um, the only group that Kenny seems to want to let make their own decisions is he said that individual businesses could still continue to require proof of vaccine and presumably masks. Yeah. And of course, during this, this press conference, Jason Kenny also famously brought up, uh, you know, picking up that thread about divisiveness. You know, he was comparing people who didn't have the vaccine to uh, the stigma, the stigma that those people face, to the stigma that people faced when people had AIDS and HIV during the height of the AIDS HIV crisis, which is an incredible fucking thing to say for Jason Kenney, yeah. uh, for uh, obvious reasons. Like Jason Kenney bragged in the late '90s about, you know, being part of a successful ballot initiative, and and you know what, I have I have the clip here. I'm just gonna fucking play the clip. 
Yeah, I became president of the pro-life group in my uh, campus and uh, um, helped to lead a, a, a ultimately successful initiative petition which led to a ref referendum which overturned the first uh, gay uh, spousal law in North America uh, in 1989 in San Francisco. So I, I fought a lot of battles there. But it's never okay uh, to treat people like that, to stigmatize people in that way. In a, in a way, it kind of reminds me of the uh, attitudes that circulated in North America in the mid-1980s about people with HIV-AIDS. That there, there's this notion that they, they had to be kind of d distanced for health reasons. Listen, this is, uh, this is a terribly divisive attitude. So yes, we encourage people to get vaccinated, but treat, treating people who have made a different decision uh, as though they are uh, unwelcome as members of our society is not acceptable. You know, what can you even say? No, I mean, it's, bro, like it's it's just it's just it's just vile and it's completely different. You know, those who who were uh, contracted a, a terrifying, highly stigmatizing disease versus people who have made choices not to get vaccinated. It's a it's a vile comparison. And while he did later apologize for it, it was only after taking a lot of heat. And, you know, frankly, if that's what comes out of your mouth and that's the comparison you want to make, the, the fact that you're later sorry because people got upset is is irrelevant. Like that that is indicative of your true thoughts. That's that's what came out of your mouth in the moment. And it's it's just vile that he he thinks about those two things as the same way. That people who who had this terrifying disease versus people who are pissed off that they can't go to eat at Eastside Mario's because they're not vaccinated. Yeah, like the divisive attitudes uh, around AIDS, like bro, like you were one of the people who were like stigmatizing people who had AIDS. Like you were actively campaigning to st stop same-sex couples from being able to see their partners in hospitals when they died of AIDS. Like that was you. You were the one causing those divisive attitudes. It's, like, it's shocking, were, even for him. He was a he was a frontline fucking soldier on the culture war there. Like. Uh, it, 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 you have to wonder what the fuck is going through his mind sometimes. Um, all right. I think now is the time to segue to, there's no good segue, but now is the time to just segue to the, the conversation about the tactics used by the Coots blockaders. And, you know, you had a, a thread, you know, a line of thought here where it is bad for the government to bow to the, uh, demands of these these people who are illegally blockading the border. Why don't you kind of like walk me through your argument there? Yeah, so so the concern that I have is that, you know, if these are the kinds of tactics that we're rewarding. We're rewarding people who have disrupted society like this, who have caused others on the border or people who living in downtown Ottawa great hardship and, uh, of course, have had um, some affiliation with, these terrifying organizations, white supremacist groups. I just think that if we reward those people and let those people think they got their way, um, we're only emboldening them to continue to 
uh, stage these protests, have these demands. I mean, I'm a proponent of, of free speech, but I'm not a proponent of the tactics employed by these people and how tolerant law enforcement has been of this. And I, I don't want them to think that their demands were bowed into and that this behavior was rewarded. All right. So before I get into my piece on this, I want to acknowledge that I don't obviously share the goals or the aims of the ideology of the people doing the Coots blockade. And I also want to acknowledge that like they're pushing on an open door here, right? Like the government of Alberta, Jason Kenney, the Royal Caucus, the UCP itself want to really do want to get rid of, of, you know, COVID restrictions because they don't like them. That, and, and I also want to acknowledge that like when a bunch of reactionary white people show up and do illegal shit, the, the, the rule of law is applied asymmetrically <laughs> to those people as it would be if a black or indigenous or anti-capitalist movements showed up and did the exact same thing. With all that being said, uh, effective, an effective protest movement is one that disrupts the business of the day. And blockading a border has proven itself clearly to be an effective protest tactic. We saw the Wet'suwet'en solidarity protests, uh, rail blockades. Those were also very effective tactics because they did disrupt the business of the day. The, the economy of Canada is dependent on our vast rail network moving freight around. You know, Alberta, I mean, the Coots uh, one was kind of localized to one single area, but that's a very kind of, that's a choke point. That's a very important node for certain sectors of our economy. And I, I think it's important for the left to not necessarily give up uh, the idea of like civil disobedience that disrupts the economy, that disrupts the business as a tactic, simply because people who we don't like, people who we object to are employing that same tactic. Yeah, you know, I, I, I mean, I think, I think that is fair. I think that uh, civil, civil disobedience is, you know, is, is one thing, but I think, you know, some of the, some of the things that I saw out of Ottawa, I think went beyond disrupting the business of the day and, and became downright harassing. There were incidents of violence. Um, and, and so I think that there, there has to be a line. And I think that in certain ways, some of this protesting went beyond what I would consider an acceptable line. Very much so. And like, you know, there was an attempted mass murder by arson in Ottawa. Like, I'm not suggesting that those are acceptable tactics, but like there is a certain elegant and simplistic, uh, tactic at play here which is like if you fucking want something go blockade a railway go blockade an international crossing go blockade a port that will actually cause shit to happen the shit that happened like might you might there might be violent repression of you by the state and you know, frankly if you're black or indigenous or anti-capitalist it's very likely but that type of direct action that type of civil disobedience is has far more of an effect than uh, a planned protest down a street uh, that the police know about or a protest outside of a legislature. You know what I mean? Yeah, ab absolutely. And and I think, of course, we, we've, we've seen that. I mean, this protest has the attention that it's that it's received and the response from from policymakers has been far greater than, for example, the, the protests that we saw when the government opened for summer. And there were weeks and weeks and weeks of, of very peaceful protests. So Absolutely, it's 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 effective, but um, and and absolutely, free speech is important. But there is that somewhere in there, there is that that balance. And that, and this is I've just been stewing at home. Like when I saw this happening, I was uh, you know stuck at home with my four year old, uh, looking at what was going on with the convoy, like what was going on with Coots, and I was like, look, I don't like these guys. I don't, I don't like that 
that they're being successful because obviously like it's bad. I, I do want health, uh, public, public health policy that keeps us safe, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to this type of direct action. Uh, again, I don't have another good seg- segue to this, but I was able to somehow get through on a COVID presser with Dr. Hinshaw. Sometimes I can get through to Dr. Hinshaw. I've never been able to get through to Jason Kenney or uh, anything with a, a health minister or a premier at it. But I did get a chance to ask Dr. Hinshaw a question at a press conference last week. And it was essentially was, you know, given the many failures of this government and you as the chief medical officer of health to stop the spread of COVID, you know, would she resign if the vaccine passport was dropped for obvious political reasons? And, you know, she didn't answer the question. She was kind of like, oh, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about the mistakes I made, blah, blah, blah. But then the vaccine passport and all these public health policy things happened. And there's Dr. Hinshaw at the press conference and she did not resign. Given that she seems to have willingly abdicated her responsibilities to protect the people of Alberta from this pandemic, should she resign? Well, I think that at, at this point, we're getting rid of, of restrictions. And, you know, if she had, had wanted to resign and to have that resignation be meaningful and send a message to Albertans, the time for that would have been open for open for summer. Um, we, you know, we saw the trajectory <laughs> that 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 set us on and we saw the poor evidence that was relied on to make to make that decision or the non-evidence that was relied on to make that decision. And so to me, um, you know, that would have been the time to, to take a stand. And, you know, even even other medical officers of health were, were critical of of that policy. Uh, sometimes they didn't directly pin the criticisms on her. Um, but we heard from the former chief medical officer of health. Uh, we heard from from many doctors, and so to me, you know, that would have been the most the the time that she could have resigned that would have had the most impact, maybe saved lives, would have been that that open open for summer. Um, you know, we'll we'll see what happens here, but but I certainly wasn't surprised she didn't resign. Um, I no, think- I wasn't. I, I wasn't surprised either. But I mean, you know, better late than never. Obviously, yeah. you can always correct your mistakes, and you bring up an interesting point. You know, a year from now. Are we going to look back at open for summer? Or are we going to look back at at uh, at this turning point as as which one is going to be worse? <laughs> yeah, well, and I think and like I think it's interesting because which one is worse from a public health perspective um, might not be the same answer as as which one was worse from a you know as sort of a, a social perspective because I think open for summer it seemed it it seemed to me that there was a lot more more pushback. There were protests. The public approval of that was was quite quite low. People then were scared of Delta and wanted restrictions brought back, and Delta proved very deadly. You know, in this case, Omicron is very different. But I also think public opinion is quite is quite different now. Um, people have really taken on board the message that you know Omicron is mild, will probably be fine. There, there, there's a lot of people who genuinely believe that. It's not health professionals necessarily. But a, but a lot of people in society have, have really taken taken that on board and seem much more receptive to to these changes than than maybe they were to changes earlier. Yeah. And finally, uh, you know, I think we're we're not obligated to, but we should end it off with something that's a little more hopeful. You know, it's easy to be enraged, or exhausted, or tired about how this government, you know 
doesn't care whether we live or die, is is happy to to make public health policy decisions based on the whims of of politics and an, un, an unreasonable and uh, and frankly like uh, awful group of people who don't care about the safety of others. Uh, but Dave Cornway did have a post about what we can do, and I'm cribbing from that. I'm cribbing from a few other people. Uh, and, and the frame here is important. Like Kenny keeps talking about, you know, living with COVID and he, he kind of seems to be talking about going back to a time where COVID never existed. And that's, that's not happening, right? Like COVID is going to be with us. It's unlikely to be completely extirpated. Uh, but we also can't ignore the past two years and we should learn from, what we have seen and observed from over that time, which Jason Kenny doesn't seem very interested in either. So uh, I'll just run through these. And if you feel like jumping in on any of these, Lorian, please, please do. So, um, you know, audits, there have been a, a few uh, of these audits that have been done by the Auditor General into the government of Alberta's response into the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, they have not been made public. Uh, UCP members at committee have blocked this from becoming public. Make those public. Uh, come on. There's, uh, there's also, I, I am of the opinion that there's been a bit of profiteering, uh, and that the a lot of money has sloshed around the health system here with regards to this pandemic. And I think we, we do need to find out where some of the money went. Um, I, I, next- I think that, I think you're right. I think the transparency is, is, is huge. And both of those to me are transparency issues. Um, you know, the government has spent vast amounts of money on COVID. They have, you know, don't don't get me confused with sort of the, the the freedom fighter type because I I think freedoms need to be balanced. But the government has limited freedoms, spent tons of money, um, lives have been lost, and part of accountability is transparency. And so I think that being upfront about yeah where where the money's gone, um, what auditor generals have recommended, I think the government is ethically and morally obliged to have an independent commission of inquiry review their pandemic response. So yes, to me, accountability and transparency are huge. Um, and will also help inform the res- our response to public health disasters in the future. Yeah. And that's then the next one is, is follows on from the audits, which is what release the audits, continue to do these audits on, on what the government's spending on COVID. But, but in that same vein, a, a public inquiry, a, a real one, you know, with a real judge and a real budget that can actually look into this government's response. Um, to the pandemic, you know, the outbreaks at Cargill and meatpacking plants, long-term care centers, the oil sands, um, you know, how decisions were arrived at. How did open to for summer happen? <laughs> Where was Jason Kenney? Where, who was making decisions? Um, these are things you can get at with a public inquiry. And that would actually be a proper use of what a public inquiry can do. <laughs> Not, not the public inquiry we saw on alleged, uh, you know, foreign-funded environmentalists. No, and not a not a, a government, a non-independent public inquiry a, a for pay one. So, for example, the government did a a look into the the first wave, and they paid KPMG to do that report. That is not that is not what I think. What either of us mean by a public inquiry? I think you're right. It needs to be a judge with a significant amount of independence from the government. Um, to properly do that. Yeah, like under the Public Inquiries Act, like give it a budget of like 10 to $20 million, like say come back in two years and like figure it all out. Like what what went wrong? Uh, the next one is obvious, is obvious, but it still needs to be said. Vaccinations, you know, for all of Kenny's talk about how vaccinations are the be all and end all, they sure really aren't trying to 
um, vaccinate, you know, people who are under 12. <laughs> and, you know, the numbers on boosters are bad. The numbers on vaccinations under 12 are bad. Like those, that's still like just work that needs to be done. <laughs> um, so uh, please let's vaccinate the people who aren't vaccinated yet. And you're actually going to have to spend time and effort and money to get that done. Uh, cleaning the air. Um, essentially, you need to invest in better ventilation in public spaces, uh, workplaces, you know, schools, uh, you know, that would be a public space. But like, this has been proven, you know, you've got engineers and scientists and doctors saying like, we can stop the spread of certain amounts of COVID, like we can stop X percentage. Yeah, if we just invest in this. Well, and, and not just COVID, right? The um, There are many respiratory uh, illnesses mm -hmm. that, that yeah. circulate. So there's the flu, there's, you know, whatever future bug fights its way to, to Alberta, those, those investments um, pay off uh, significantly. And, and I don't know that we've, we've seen a lot of economic analyses on them, but I can't imagine that they're not wise investments given their ability to prevent not only COVID, but other things. Yeah. And it's like stimulus spending, you know, get some HVAC, uh, techs and tradespeople working. Um, this one is obvious, but I'll always say it, you know, get a union and or get involved in your union. Um, you know, I think something that's been very clear from this pandemic is that working class Albertans need better and stronger workplace health and safety protections. And those aren't things that employers are ever going to just improve on their own. It's something that you actually have to come together with your fellow workers and demand. Um, and one of the ways to do that is through a union. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, one can look, for example, at uh, the long-term care sector where, um, you know, there, there are facilities that are that are unionized, but there's a whole lot of uh, health care aides, personal support workers who are not only um, non-unionized, but are in very precarious working situations and are not in a position to influence their their employers. So, so absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you're glad you brought up long-term care. Let's just nationalize it. They're, the profit motive should be nowhere near this system of where how we take care of our elders as they get older and need more help. Yeah, and, and we've we've always had evidence that uh, that the um, for-profit facilities perform more poorly on certain quality metrics, but um, we now have evidence showing that in terms of COVID, they did. Uh, uh, there's there's a study published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal showing that in Ontario, those those for-profit facilities did more poorly in terms of protecting their residents from from COVID. Unsurprisingly, yeah. you were more likely to die if you lived in a for-profit long-term care facility. That's just fact. Um, sick days, you know, the government has resisted bringing in sick days because you know bosses don't want it, but we absolutely, positively, fucking need paid sick days. If you don't want highly contagious virus to spread, people need to be able to stay home and not be afraid that they're not going to be able to make rent, pay their mortgage, or uh, or be fired. <laughs> like it's it's as simple as that. Uh, and, and, and I would and, I would hope that the the greater receptiveness to working from home helps with that as well. That you know you may have people who are not. Um, you know, incapacitated, they're not in bed coughing all day, um, and, and but could work from their home. And so employers need to be receptive of, for that as well. Because I think we have a lot of people who, even though they have sick days, uh, will call in sick in the day that they're truly unable to work, but then they'll show up for the next three days when they may still be infectious. Well, 
now that we've seen that, that working from home can be effective, we can have that same person stay home for a full work week, still be somewhat productive, but not bring their bug to the office. Yeah. Paid sick days. Just do it tomorrow. Yes. <laughs> um, this is, this is a broader problem, not necessarily a like Alberta problem, but still needs to be done, which is vaccinate the global South and grant those trips waivers so that vaccine vaccines can be manufactured uh, anywhere by any facility that could, has the ability to manufacture them. Yeah. This is just like, if we don't want more variants to pop up, we just have to get everyone vaccinated. This is just simply a, like a global equity issue. Yeah. We don't need, we don't need to be in a position where we're getting six shots and, and healthcare workers in sub-Saharan Africa haven't had one shot. Like that is, that is appalling. Yeah. Uh, we, I think it's also clear we need publicly owned production and distribution of personal protective equipment and things like rapid antigen tests. And, you know, this wave, this fifth wave could have been drastically mitigated if we had widespread access to respirators and they just weren't available. You can only do that with the power of the state and a publicly owned uh, system where you say, I don't care about the profit motive at this time. I'm just going to produce a shitload of respirator masks so that we can keep people safe. And finally, uh, you know, this one's a bit of a cheesy one, but it is true is that we do need to take care of each other. The government isn't clearly isn't going to look out for us. They don't care if we live or die. So it's up to us. And that's both scary and comforting. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that, that, that it's cheesy at all. If we think of it as in terms of sort of, you know, the government has said they're not going to do anything, but <clears throat> That doesn't stop us from from making wise choices. It doesn't stop us from um, asking our employer to stay home if we're sick. Um, you know, if we have the the availability of sick days, it doesn't stop us from having our our kids and ourselves wear masks in the grocery store. It doesn't stop us from not going to a massive gathering or or even collectively, right? Groups of employees pushing an employer to to, to have better protections or people lobbying their municipality, depending which way the winds blow on the municipal question or people lobbying their school board. So, so people do have, uh, people do have power and, and people do have, uh, have influence and uh, both themselves and collectively and can do things to mitigate their own risks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not, I mean, as much as Jason Kenney and the rich and powerful want to hyper individualize COVID and the pandemic and society and the economy, like it isn't like yeah. we can't approach it that way or we're cooked. We That's do right. have to come together and figure this out. And we shouldn't have to rely on personal responsibility. The government should be the ones acting, but the fact that they're not going to act shouldn't, is shouldn't defeat us. There, there are still things we can all do. Yeah. Well, it's been lovely talking with you, Lauren. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, how can people find you on the internet and follow the work that you do? So probably the the best place is on is on Twitter, and I'm at uh, l o r i a n underscore h. Hardcastle is too long for Twitter. Um, although although I recently had a Twitter uh, Twitter impersonation account pop up, so I guess I guess you know you've made it big when that happens. But uh, but yeah, Lorian underscore h, or of course uh, I have a web page at the University of Calgary. Yes, follow Lorian on Twitter and uh, read if you're inclined to read health law, health policy stuff. She does great work in that field as well. Uh, folks, if you like this podcast, there's something you can do to help us out. And it's really simple. You put in your credit card, you become a recurring donor, 
and we'd really appreciate it. Uh, we have a couple of big bills that actually come up every year right around this time. And if you could kick in five, 10, 15, $20 a month, we would be very grateful. Also, if you have any notes, thoughts, comments, things you think I need to hear, I am very easy to reach. I am on Twitter uh, always, also and always at, at Duncan Kinney, and you can reach me by email at duncank at progressalberta.ca. Thank you to Jim Story for editing this podcast. Thank you to Cosmic Famu Communist for our amazing theme. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>